0: Hello, listeners, and welcome to Weird Era, a literary podcast where we ask the right questions. Today, I am very pleased to be joined by Kyle Dylan hertz to discuss his debut novel, The Look Back Window, Get ready for the best bio you've ever heard. Kyle Dylan Hertz received an MFA in fiction at NYU, where he was the writer in public schools fellow. He lives in Brooklyn. In the look back window. Growing up in suburban New York, Dylan lived through the unfathomable. Three years as a victim of sex trafficking at the hands of Vincent, a troubled young man who promised to marry Dylan when he turned 18. Years later, long after a police investigation that went nowhere and after the statute of limitations for the crimes perpetrated against him have run out, the long shadow of Dylan's trauma still looms over the fragile life in the city he's managed to build with his fiancée moans who knows little of Dylan's past. His continued existence depends upon an all-important mantra, to survive, you live through it, but never look back. Then, a groundbreaking new law, the Child Victims Act, opens up a new way forward, a one-year window during which Dylan can sue his abusers. But for someone who was trafficked as a child, does money represent justice? Does his pain have a price? As Dylan is forced to look back at what happened to him and try to make sense of his past, he begins to explore a drug and sex-fueled world of bathhouses, clubs, and strangers' apartments, only to emerge, barely alive, with a new clarity of purpose, a righteous determination to gaze unflinching upon the brutal men whose faces have haunted him for a decade, and to extract justice on his own terms. By turns harrowing, lyrical, and beautiful, Hertz's debut offers a startling glimpse at the unraveling of trauma and the light that peeks faintly and often in surprising ways from the other side of the window. Hi, Kyle. Thank you for joining me today. Thank you for having me. I do want to start this interview, um, and I, I've been reading the press that's been coming out about it and the interviews that you've been doing. Um, I want to just acknowledge how difficult the look back window is to consume. Um, and at the same time and in the same breath, I think you should be thanked for that. Um, I don't read a lot of memoir, and I know this isn't memoir. But the way you decided to share this particular story with the world was interesting to me. Um, I also do want to bring up the concept of autofiction for a moment here as well. And for listeners who might not be familiar with this term, it's actually hugely popular uh, genre in French and Québécois literature, kind of denoting fiction that is autobiographical in nature. I think you've also been quite open in discussing how a lot of the basis of the look-back window comes from your own lived experience. So looking at this question through that auto-fictional lens, why did you decide to write a novel and not a memoir?
1: I mean, in in one way, the book to me is just pure fiction. Like, there's Mm -hmm. a lot of characters who are in it who just, like, literally don't exist. You know, pretty much what I think of as based in reality is, like, the superstructure of the novel. A character who's had this thing happen has to go through this process. And, you know, some of the details of the abuse are similar. Some of the the setting, obviously, is similar. But the, the actual, like, live details of it the book, is, the book takes place over three months. You know, this kind of thing would be shocking if it all happened within three months. He would be truly dead at the end of this book if it were purely <laughs> real life, you know? Um, but I think I specifically wanted to lend Dylan my middle name in order mm. to, one, make a direct connection to real life, because the issues that the book talks about are very real to me. And I knew I could speak on them and I knew I could expand on them. And I knew that by kind of courting that sort of question in interviews, it would open me up to a question that would otherwise really annoy many writers, which is like, how much is true? What's based in real life? Which for me is not annoying because I made an intentional choice and B, because of that intentional choice, I'm able to discuss the Crime Victims Treatment Center, look back windows, oh. male sexual assault, and like give people permission to ask maybe a question that otherwise they would be afraid of asking.
0: A word that I'm sure will be coming up a whole lot for you in the coming weeks as you navigate the release of The Look Back Window and more readers are, are gravitating towards it, is vulnerable. Uh, Robert Jones Jr. blurbs it right there on the back of my copy that I've got. Um, I'm curious about your thoughts on vulnerability as craft. Um, there's this discomfort, obviously, that encapsulates The Look Back Window, um, and it's very inherent to the subject matter itself. But I do wonder if there's more to it than that. The question here being, is vulnerability defined by discomfort?
1: I I mean, in some ways, yes. I think the process of sharing any part of yourself with another person Mm. can frequently be uncomfortable. And I think, like, you know, joy, happiness is also, like... can be very uncomfortable to, to share so i do think in some ways the process of being vulnerable with another person is discomfort i think if you have gone through childhood trauma and specifically childhood sexual trauma you know one of the major parts of healing is you know testimony is speaking mm. what you what happened to you and especially for men when this sort of like taboo you know, nature of male sexual assault is part of the conversation, that vulnerability is important. Uh, Or that honesty, that discomfort is important because it is just an uncomfortable subject. And I think for me as an artist, I, I value that discomfort because whenever I read these, like, really shitty books, whenever I read these... Horrible manuscripts in my MFA cohort that you know I, I'm years out of. Thank God, uh, um, like I I would just be shocked at the distance between what happened between the subject matter mm. and how they were positioning it to people and it, uh, to readers. It would not even be something that they would. It it wouldn't be something they would. How they would talk about it in real life. There's this very strange kind of distance that can occur when a when a writer makes a terrible choice which is how can I make this subject matter palatable to a reader where Mm. I think the smarter way to look at it is how can I properly render an experience that can be enthralling to a reader because as you know as I know as any of us alive know we witness extraordinary violence extraordinary pain pornography like you know worth anything mm-hmm. it's it's within our reach it's all within our vernacular so why is it that there's this strange tone in books that's kind of like semi-distant kind of cool things go off stage it's like if you can google a beheading video i can see it in five seconds if you could see a hardcore gangbang in five seconds if your mom i went on a family vacation recently and mm-hmm. Just some of the stuff that was coming up between my mom and my dad and their friends, there's no sort of taboo that really exists so that this bizarre tone that we see in books should exist as well. I don't understand it, and I kind of just, like, refuse to be a part of it.
0: Um, Do you think discomfort is always a symptom of vulnerability when you write?
1: In some... In some ways, yes, because I think that, like, I mean, this is a dev analogy, but, like, you, you take Molly and it tastes terrible, bef- you know, before the, before you can, like, get to that euphoric moment. And I think, like, the part of the discomfort is that you are looking for relief, right? Like, any, mm. there's, I'm, like, struggling to find some kind of like zone where there isn't an aspect to any confession to any story that does not involve a bit of discomfort because what are you relieving then if you don't have that mm-hmm. does that make sense
0: yeah oh yeah yeah, yeah. keep going <laughs> i
1: i mean i don't i really think that's it like i it's hard during talking about this book because in some ways like there's a lot of things this book was written in many ways in response to other books that I really, mm. really don't like because I just like it wasn't just my MFA core. And in some ways, I'm just making fun of them. I love most of them, half of them, a third of them. And <laughs> it's bizarre to me that in literary fiction, there is still some kind of burden on a narrator to mm. people. I don't even want to use the term be likable because that's not it. Um because we've had all these tired, boring discussions of kind of narrator being likable. It's it's still not that to me. It's something deeper, which is like, you know, how can a narrator be parental? I think that's, I think a lot of people, a lot of readers, and a, require a sort of parental withholding of material by narrators when you and your best friends, y'all can pretty much say anything you want to each other. And there's no kind of... no real withholding and for me those are the books i like when you have this sort of immediate intimacy with a narrator which to me also means you have that discomfort like you have someone like Mm -hmm. expressing something imperfectly you are under the spell of a narrative which in many ways is a sleight of hand which i prefer when you when they leave that discomfort part in because otherwise i know the mechanics of real life So I know what's being left out when it's fed to me. And I don't like being treated like I'm stupid. And I certainly don't like being treated
0: like your child. So you do something really interesting with Dylan, um, especially it it really comes out like right in the middle in the meat of the book um, where he really starts existing in this liminal time space. Um, He's both living through what happened to him 13 years ago, and simultaneously he's living in this future that he sees without his fiancée. And time just becomes this really fluid thing to him. Um, A great line, quote, "'I wanted to step into the room and say, "'We can stop pretending. "'I have moved far beyond this place. "'I loved it for a time, yet I am in the future, "'and this is my past.'" The question here being, what makes the present so easy to ignore?
1: I think it's less easy to ignore and more like harder to actually experience. And Mm. I think we all struggle with obviously being present. But of course, on like a deeper level for someone who struggles with um, very specifically violent trauma, and is still kind of in the midst of it, you know, the events of your life are disordered and the way that you sort of, you know, go through life is in some ways avoiding triggers, in some ways actively seeking them out. Mm-hmm. One, of, one of the reasons why it, you know, online versions of PTSD or any kind of narrative medium of PTSD that you can kind of tell when they're bullshit because one of the major symptoms for actually having it, being in active throws to it, is A, yes, avoiding triggers, but also like traumatic reenactments. So right. when you kind of have these people or these mediums discussing PTSD and it's like only like occasionally being triggered, you know, that's just, there's like 10 symptoms of PTSD. If you only have that one, you're probably healed from it. You know, that's, that's not the full story. So when, especially like, I like quit the, I recently got back onto Twitter because of the book and just whatever, same thing with Instagram, Mm -hmm. but I like quit all that stuff for a long time because I used to be really, really frustrated by encountering people claiming these identities of these traumatic identities where they would lock onto one symptom and be like this is this is it this is my ptsd this is you know because of this thing that happened and i you know i went to the i have been in treatment for CPTSD for many many years i have multiple friends who have ptsd and if you just had this once if any of us had this one symptom we would be pretty fucking relieved but mm-hmm. because it's much deeper than that like i was saying like your question which is what why is the present so hard to experience because it is not just that you were trying to avoid the past. You're also trying to re-encounter it constantly. And this pull is not, is how do I escape it? How do I go toward it? And when you're not fully conscious of the things that make you do that, you're just walked left and right. And of course, you're not going to be able to be present for yourself, your partner. You're not going to know when to eat. You're not going to know when you're hungry. And that's part of the journey of this book is to sort of, This book on healing from violent trauma is, okay, let me order the Mm -hmm. events of the past. Let me figure out what it is that I want. Let me figure out how I can control myself and enter a space where for most of the time I have forward motion rather than, Mm -hmm. you know, constantly having a pool, you know, things shattered and the ball's going all different directions. That's not a fun way to live.
0: I actually tend to ask this next question specifically to writers of horror, um, which I guess, now that I'm saying it, this book could be defined as. Um, but the answers always really intrigue me, so I'm curious about yours. Um, where is the line for you between writing something that can be re-traumatizing and something that can be healing?
1: Writing for me is the one genre where I, I really have a very difficult time being triggered by it. Um, I can, movies for me, when it's purely imagistic, I can, it goes so fast, my brain needs a second to catch up to it, which right. you know means you're triggered. You, for me writing, I, I'm saying this for me, I, I think this is probably for most people, because even reading fast, it's still taking a long time for that information to get into your system. Like. You can. You really have a lot of time to quit. You, once you start seeing certain <laughs> words, you're. Just, it's just like, baby, come on, like, close you, the book. It, like, exactly. So, yeah. I think I have a near endless ability, and I honestly think most people have a near endless capacity with writing because it is one of the only things that you can choose to quit in real time. Hmm. One of the reasons why I do kind of. And also, the other part of that is when you go through trauma therapy, when you go, you know, this thing about being triggered, the way to heal from trauma is you encounter triggers. You, you know, you purposefully, in a safe environment, encounter them. It's not the opposite that you kind of read online sometimes, where it's like, oh, I have to avoid the triggers. No, no, that's, that's because you're not in treatment. That's because you're not maybe in a safe place. You know, go get those things, but... none of there is no specialist that's like oh you must all to to heal from this you know you must not ever be triggered no you have to be triggered you must encounter these things to work through them so for me part of the explicit nature of my book because in some ways in earlier drafts I thought of this book as really explicitly showing people how you heal from violent trauma from sexual abuse Mm -hmm. and that means it's going to be explicit because this is not a a book where, you know, the guy dies at the end, like, this is not, you know, this is not one of those trauma narratives where it's like, oh no, this bad thing happens to you and you're fucked. No, this is a, this is a novel that yes, is explicit. Yes, is violent. Yes, has moments of horror. But that I think unlike a lot of other literature that deals with these subjects explicitly shows you about 20 ways that you could handle this material that you can handle your life. And that ends with you in a better place.
0: Did you know that the end product was going to offer those kinds of insights? What brought you to that is I think what I'm trying to ask.
1: Yes. I always was going to do that. I mean, I, Mm. again, because I was in treatment for in trauma therapy during this and one of the big things that I discovered, because let's, I don't know, when I, let's say it was four years ago that I mm-hmm. really entered the Crime Victims Treatment Center, which in New York, if you're the victim of violent crime, you therapy is free. Actually, all over America, which is something I learned during this process, which some interview person asked me, like, oh, what, why isn't there more stuff like the Crime Victims Treatment Center? And I was like, I don't know, it pisses me off that there's not. And then I had a moment where I was like, okay, Kyle, like, you're not that smart. Like, ask an expert. So I called up the person who runs the Crime Victims Treatment Center and they said, okay, well, in America, because of this victim's bill, you call this number and within two hours, there is a treatment center where you can be treated for free. Uh, That blew my mind because like most of my life I've been struggling. No one ever offered me that. And I've lived in multiple different states. I have all these friends and we've all been, you know, we've been through it. And there's not one of us that has been offered this service and yet it's law. Yeah, it's Mm -hmm. it's the law of the land, it's everywhere. And I think, so, so to answer your question, like when I entered this program and I started to see my life change, my life changed dramatically and quickly and for the better it became really important to me to create and sustain a narrative that is still interesting that is still tense that but that offers the techniques of trauma therapy in a manner that is consistent with real life in a manner that's consistent with healing because any one of us can write a book where someone gets specifically where like you know someone gets raped and they kill themselves, or someone gets a drug addiction and they kill themselves, you know.
0: Yeah, we've all read Hanya Gahara. That doesn't necessarily translate to real life and real help, right?
1: Yeah, and for some people it does. You know, like for some, there are some people who just don't and don't have good lives, and that's a structural issue in in a lot of ways. Which is like, how how does everyone not know that? how did, how was I not told 10 years before I ended up in treatment that I could have had it? It makes me pissed off. It makes me pissed mm-hmm. off for a lot of people that I care about who have really, really struggled. And, you know, part of the reason why people love a little life is uh, I also do like a little life, you know, I'm not shitting on it in that regard, but part of the reason they love it is the deep well of feeling. And I mm-hmm. think I think people do like to feel a little bit above the material they're reading sometimes. And so they like to feel like their life is a little better than Jude's, even though Jude is the character they purport to identify most with. I don't, I don't think it's that fully. I think, I think more likely it is that at least I am better than this person who I identify with. Like, at least I am better off than I could have been if I made different choices. And yeah. that's kind of like a nasty feeling as, as a reader to have. Um, but it's a deep feeling, and it's a feeling that makes you feel a lot. I think my book does offer similar extremities. It just similar extremes. It just doesn't offer. Dylan never lets you feel better than him, ever, right. and that <laughs> is by design.
0: It's so interesting. Just this podcast, a lot of the time, I don't know if I'm going to keep this in or not, but like you've already made me think differently about the book that I just read and wrote an entire interview about, you know, (laughs) it, it, but it's, it's fascinating getting these answers from you because it makes this book specifically seem much more like a gift than anything else. And that's very cool. So, (laughs) Dylan's teenage experiences very much kind of start and end with the internet. He first meets Vincent online and is then pulled into this very, very cruel world through Vincent. But again, ultimately, the internet is the vehicle. Um, you and I are also about the same age. I think we both kind of grew up with the internet as this really fascinating but still kind of unknown entity at that time. We were warned a lot more than anything else about the potential pitfalls. And I think a lot of us really pushed back against that um, and wanted to figure it out and wanted to navigate it for ourselves. Um, I think we could probably double down even further as gay men who were able to find community for the first time via the internet as young people. Do you think we've gotten better at navigating the internet as a society?
1: I mean... I, I don't. I mean, I think we're just as ignorant as ever. Like, and I really, truly believe that. Just, it's been a, you know, you're you are once you are young, you are you have this idealism in your mind. You are like, I am never going to, I'm never going to do anything immoral. And then we're, <laughs> you know, I'm on my Apple computer. You know, probably wearing something that was made in, you know, a slave factory that some Instagram TikToker, you know, with her BBL is saying like, oh, it's okay. You know, I don't (laughs) think in many ways, like, I, I, I don't, I, I really, really don't. I think we are just truly ignorant beings. I think that we are going to stay that way forever. I think as things get worse in the world, you know, as our temperatures increase, as you know, all this stuff happens. I think the ignorance will increase as well. I think the thing that gets better is that w- when we were young, g- gay people on the internet, I mm-hmm. knew no gay people. There was n- yeah, I didn't have it. There was nothing else for me. Like, you know, oh, yeah. I had my I had my hags, of course. Like, you know, I <laughs> but that's not the same. And I think what I think the internet use will always you know, involve a good amount of ignorance, but I think hopefully, like, as more, as, like, there's a greater queer community that exists in, in larger spaces that you will, certain people will be forced less into spaces where they just will be taken advantage of. And right. that, to me, is the hopeful part.
0: To get... Even a bit more specific in that question, do you think we've gotten better at navigating uh gay community?
1: I'm really not a negative person. <laughs> I'm actually like quite a positive person <laughs> i my life is like really just in general filled with joy a... mm-hmm. i just I'm like really rubbed the wrong way by I... the internet in general and mm. i don't i rarely ever see things that make me feel good that's not like really iso- you know, really isolated to a few TikToks about like dogs being friends with each other you know outside of and even then they're probably slaves and some dog making TikTok factory <laughs> you know but I think again it's the same thing which is as our consciousness increases right like I have a lot of my a lot of my close friends are not white. And watching the kind of shit that they go through um, Mm -hmm. is crazy. Not because it's so shocking, but because uh, the internet finds novel ways to make one person feel worse than other people. And specifically with queer people, with the queer community, I don't know, like, maybe for some people, it gets a little better. But I I don't, I don't, my answer will change when I see my friends who are more marginalized than me, when I see them have a bit of a better time. But Mm -hmm. what, when you see that shit, that's the stuff that makes your blood boil and you're just like, oh, wow, it's better for a few people and just as horrible for a greater proportion. Mm -hmm. What What do you think? Do you have an answer to that?
0: Not particularly. I was actually going to say, I, like, I think the key word was navigating. I think we might be getting better at navigating the internet specifically. I think it's, I, I don't know, but that also might just be, like, us as in, like, you and I. Like, I know how to navigate the internet better now than I did when I was 14 years old. I know how to navigate and find community better now than I did when I was 14 years old, you know? Um, but I I don't know. When When I think about it in much more general terms and societal terms, I'm also not sure. I think you expressed it quite well.
1: I think it goes to the same thing, which is, like, again, in some ways, like, navigating, to me, it's like it's there's a different person I in some ways I'm better at navigating it. At the same time, like the, what I'm ignorantly choosing to participate in for another person who just so doesn't happen to me to be me this time is like really really suffering, and mm. I think that's that's kind of like again like maybe like I'm not putting myself. What? That's a story I can't tell on camera. But there have been there have been times that. I have ended up in a in a dark place and in trouble, on the mm-hmm. internet still twenty years later, because right. it's a new space and I don't know enough. And then I end somewhere. Yeah. I just like. You don't want to be. Don't want to be. Yeah.
0: <laughs> Jumping off of all of that, then one of my favorite moments in the look back window comes in this quote, and I think this is also just testament to your talent as an author, um, quote, some people mistakenly believe language has lost its power that the word has been bastardized, but they're wrong. Language has reached its peak. We now live in an age where people claim words designed by people who want them to suffer. This is not the age of degradation, but the age of language surpassing sound and becoming a product. I kind of want to hear you talk about this a little bit further um and i'm curious um your thoughts on if we are at the peak of language in the sense of reclamation are we also facing an eventual decline
1: i mean in in many ways like the book is about language and like you know what does it mean to really be able to say what happened to you what does it mean to be able to really say how you feel about something and to not worry about the consequence you know so much of the book is about that and part of the the joy as a writer in writing this book is that I really gave Dylan permission to say kind of whatever he thought kind of whatever he wanted I allowed him to like have that kind of Freedom to just say shit, and mm-hmm. part of, you know, part of that little moment where Dylan is talking about the, a bit of the reclamation stuff. He's he's talking in that specific instant about people calling themselves survivors as opposed to victims, which, to me, is anno- is really annoying because again, like the victim stuff, like if you think about it, it's like victim services. It's you know the crime victims treatment center. It's if if you really aligned yourself with victimhood, you would find easier services, you would find more help. But mm. there's no like, you know, it's not like one 800 survivor where you call and they tell you all this stuff. Like we live in survivor culture now and how have they still not told you about everything that's offered to you? Right. You know, that's frustrating. So I, in that moment, Dylan is really saying like, call me a victim, don't call me a survivor. And in some way, saying like, at least I have something to offer you then, at least it's more honest. Mm. On a larger level, Dylan's being very playful with language in this regard because he obviously yes. says fag. The book says fag. The book says, I think, almost every curse you can possibly say. N- not slur, but curse. Like, it's there's no, you know, there's n- no weird kind of hierarchical religious mm-hmm. withholding at all in this novel. And that play, again, is a big just joy I have in language. One of Dylan's joys is playing around with it. And of course, as the culture deepens, like I think proof that Dylan was right in this regard is like AI, or sorry, language becoming a product. AI is just like language as a product. Now that, mm-hmm. you know, even tell my students like, just, cause I, I teach and the AI thing became a thing this past semester. And I, I always say to them, First of all, I don't believe in grading as a teacher. I don't grade at all. That you walk into my class, you get an A. The, like, there's nothing. I will never be your parent. I give them this whole speech. Not your parent. I'm never gonna punish you. You take what you want out of this class. If you want to learn, you'll learn. Mm-hmm. If you want, you won't. But I'll never punish you. And part then this whole fucking like AI thing happens, and all these teachers are flipping out. And I'm just like, I say to my my students the first day, like I like literally just don't want to read an AI essay. Um, I'm like, I don't I literally don't care if you fulfill the assignment. Like, please just don't make me read this thing because Mm. there is something about it that feels there is something about the language of it that just doesn't feel as alive that you can't kind of clock and that just like isn't fun. That's that's just language as a product. And I don't I don't choose to like be a part of that, you know, Um, that's just not my world that's not the shit i'm interested in and i you know in the in the writing of this book there just is a lot of dylan specifically like pushing the boundaries of like what can be said like how explicit can the sex scene be like how can i make it so it's not just a sex scene that it's more that there's instruction that there's play that there's pleasure pain i think that's that's the kind of language world i want to live in not you know Mm -hmm. here's a sex scene inspired by Raymond Carver, given to you by chatbot.ai or whatever, you know, that's that's not for me.
0: There are a lot of players in the look back window um, trying to control narratives. Um, Of course, Dylan is very, very much trying to control his future and his own narrative, literally for the sake of his life. Um, Moans in particular can come across as well-intentioned, but at the end of the day is prepared to do things like privately threaten Dylan's therapist for malpractice and secretly microdose him. Um, Dylan literally says to Matan, his therapist at one point, quote, it's a control thing when the therapist is questioning Moans intentions. Um, This is a big question, but I do kind of want to hear your thoughts how do we reclaim narratives when others are willing to do anything to hijack them?
1: I mean, my answer from life is like, be angry. One of the biggest, the biggest ways that I learned how to really heal, really like be present, really be able to, to be the person that I am for the people that I love. And even for some people, I don't even care for that much, you know, is I had to learn had to learn how to stop dismissing my emotions in any regard, which means like, anger does not get less, you know, honor from me than sadness does. And anger does not get less honor than happiness. You know, is to really these things are the amazing tools, and when you right. dismiss one that is potentially culturally and ins- you know not kosher like anger you're really, really eliminating one of the major, you know, biological, historical, genealogical tools that our, you know, shitty little ancestors walking around with fire gave us. And I think, I just like wish people, I wish people were more angry and then I also wish anger was less villainized simultaneously because, you know, it is villainized, but it's villainized because that's, like, one of the major tools of control, right? You protest, you go to jail. You you see this a lot of—you you really learn this lesson very young in school when you're, like, a kid and you do something or you, you watch another student talk back to a teacher, and that teacher, like, really reprimands them. But that's one of the first instances of— you know, kind of societal control, narrative control, where you watch an authority figure outside of your own home diminish anger, diminish upset, diminish hurt in order to keep this kind of, to keep whatever narrative going. And undoing that work takes a long time. It takes risks. It takes real safety. Um, And having people around you who like will let you be angry, by which I don't mean like breaking shit everywhere, or which occasionally could even happen. Honestly, like break a dish, break a glass, like. It's a what's the worst thing that happens if you unlearning the ways that the world has really controlled you does require making mistakes, and it does require people around you being able to see through a, a bad moment. So I do think anger can help I'll, I think, get people to not have, you know, to not let the ulterior narratives control them or exist and yeah just being honest with your feelings i mean it's hard we were all used to it we all just like watch a bullshit world on tv we see what just happened with sinead o'connor which is like an extraordinary like moment of what happens when the narratives that are forced upon you are are spoken out against and and she had anger she did she had (laughs) anger she she really showed the world like yeah, Fuck you, you know?
0: There's a level of frustration in the way so many people want to help Dylan and most fall into two categories. Either the category of Dylan doesn't actually want their help um, or they, quote can't do anything to help him like in the case of uh quigley the lawyer i do also want to highlight a line from alexander here quote a feeling of helplessness while searching for help is not a feeling that passes easy do you think at the end of the day that we can only ever help ourselves
1: no i mean yes and no uh You can very easily help another person. I would not be here without the help of very specific people who helped me in concrete ways. I mean, I wouldn't be here if the the therapy programs, the Crime Victims Treatment Center wasn't free because I could never Mm. have afforded it. I would still be doing insane things, being walked around by things that happened to me decades ago. I Mm. literally would not be here because I'd done the paid therapy thing. It didn't work. Like, I couldn't accept it. I literally, I mean, that's another, I don't think that's in the book, but that was a big part of it for me, which is just like, I could never trust someone who I had to pay for. There was no world, no help that they could ever give me where I would fully trust them if money was involved, because you just can't. Anyway, there are a million ways you can help a person. I think that it does often require a ton of different people trying to help someone. I think it requires helping in little ways. You know, like every person like adds something and it I, it does require a bit of selflessness. It requires like wanting to help someone for their sake and not, you know, because you wanna be involved with it. Cause there's, we all know people who like, will kind of help you as long as it somehow benefits them. The flip side of that is you really, in many ways also can only help yourself you can only choose to accept help you can only choose to protect yourself you can you have to really take responsibility mm. in this regard for your own worth for your own life for your own happiness and remember that because i also i have a, a friend who had this horrible mental breakdown had these great friends around Um, him who really lifted them up. And then for years after, you know, some of his friends or his, you know, mother would be like, oh, you know, they saved you. And that shit pisses me off because you save yourself at the end of the day. People can help, but there is really, unless it is a doctor sewing you up, like you save yourself, you choose to be better, you choose to get help, you choose all these things. You can't force help on someone who doesn't want it. So it is both like you kind of help other people. But at the same time, I hate when I hear other people be like, oh, you know, these people saved you. You only saved yourself.
0: That's that's kind of what I think about that. Moving forward, what do you think having this narrative out in the world will, will do for you? Um, is, was it a watershed moment, completing it and kind of having it out? Or is this a step towards that moment for you?
1: it's hard because I'm going to, I'm going to give you the real answer that like, I have almost exclusively say for a few people over text in many Mm -hmm. ways, the book being out in the world means so very little to me. And I thought it would mean a lot more. It was a dream. I had to have this book published and I am really grateful for it. I'm grateful for the conversations I've had with people, Mm -hmm. but, I think the the real truth is just like it, it almost it has nothing to do with me anymore. And not only does it have nothing to do with me, I have such a full life. I am so happy. I have friends, I have a family, I have an apartment. I have these things that just have shifted my priorities so much to where if you had asked me this question two years ago, when I had almost nothing, I mean, I did not have a home when I met my husband. I was like, you know, it, it was dark days for a while there. And I, I really thought having a book would just give me so much purpose in life. And it didn't, my friends did. My, I, I gave myself, the people I loved, it, the, the work I've done, all of that just means so much. And I feel so grateful for that. I feel grateful for some of the book stuff too. But mm. at the end of the day, it is a it is a product in many ways. And I hope that... Oh, I hope eventually I'm able to f- divorce myself enough from this that the conversations will be had between people when I'm not in the room. Because that ultimately is what novels have done for me, is they have privately liberated me from, you know, narratives that maybe I didn't want to be a part of, or they've given me the space to kind of say things I... I don't really have the language for it. And specifically with this book, because it is so explicit, because there is, you know, so much sex in it when it deals with like a rape victim, which you don't often see, I hope that there are people who privately get to commune with something that when it is attached to me is a product of mine, but something when they hold in their hands is a deeply personal narrative experience where they will get to kind of do their own communion, where I don't have to be a part of it. In some ways, like, you know, the person who wrote this book is is really dead. And the narrative in many ways, because it's hard because I don't believe in spoilers, but I won't say anything, but the very end of the book does kind of specifically, there are many parts of this book that talk to the reader directly. And the very last part of this book hopefully does so in a way that frees the reader from ever needing to Google who Kyle Doanhurts is. And they just get to have their own private little worship experience, not with me, not even with the text, but with their own possibilities as like a living person.
0: I've never cried on my own podcast, but that one really got me misty-eyed. Thank you for this interview. Um so so pleased listeners please pick up copies of uh the look back window at your local indie bookstore thanks kyle thank you so much thank you